0: I want to start off by saying that as we go through the book of Romans for the next 16 weeks together, each Sunday night a new gentleman will get up and, and go through a chapter of this letter that Paul wrote to these brethren in Rome. We will not have the opportunity to dive into Romans and un- uncover all of the things that are in this book but I hope that we will have a better understanding of it when we're finished and that we will continue to study the book of Romans on our own time and we will see the wonders of this letter. I want to talk a little bit about the letter as we begin studying Romans 1. Just a few things that I think are extremely helpful to place this letter. It's helpful for me in my mind. Romans is the sixth letter that Paul wrote. He wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then Galatians and Romans he wrote in about a four-month period of time between Galatians and Romans. He wrote Romans while wintering in Corinth around 58 AD. He had left Athens around Acts chapter 17 to just kind of place that there. Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 18, he goes to Corinth, he winters there the late part of 57, early 58 A.D. And this is when he wrote these two letters, Galatians and Romans, at the end of his third missionary journey. Now what I find interesting about this letter, and I want to make note of, it's unique in this sense. To my knowledge, Paul had been to all of these other places that he had written to previously. When he wrote the letter to these people in Rome, he would not go and see them until 61 A.D. He would go as a prisoner from Jerusalem. So this is the only letter that I'm aware of that Paul would write before he actually goes. Now, chapter 1, a little breakdown here of how we're going to go through this. There are four main sections. I say there's four main sections. You may say there's five. Four sections or four parts of this chapter that we're going to look at tonight. First, Paul's greeting. Then his desire to go to the brethren in Rome, the righteous shall live by faith, and then finally God's wrath upon the unrighteous. Now each one of these things are worthy of a sermon in and of itself, but hopefully we will gain from this study of the chapter and have a better understanding of each of these things. The first thing, beginning in Romans chapter 1 verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, "...called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also called of Jesus Christ." "...to all that are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." There is so much packed into just these seven verses, but I want to point something out that I think is very crucial going into this letter. First, it is the language that Paul uses in his introduction. Some may say this is not that crucial of a point, but I think it's very important considering Paul's audience, the language that he uses... Verses 1 and 2, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. These four things, I think, are important. The first one that we notice is that Paul is a servant of Jesus Christ. Notice this here. I want to take time to just notice this. Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude 1.1, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, James 1.1, 1, 1. James, a servant of God and the, and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ. And you may say, well, what is the point? The point is, brethren, do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? And I don't mean in an arrogant sense. I don't mean in a, a prideful sense. But do you want to stand before God on the day of judgment and hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well, then you must be a servant, because Paul was a servant first. Matthew 23 and 11, But he that is great among you, you shall shall be your servant. I messed that all up. But he that is greatest among you, you shall be your servant. That doesn't sound right, but that's what it is. Paul was a servant first. Second thing I want us to notice is this language here, called and separated, or separated and called. Very Jewish language, something that the Jews would have been very familiar with, this concept, this idea of being called and separated. Paul says that he was called an apostle here. Let's take a look at something. Acts 23 and 6, Paul says, But when he received that the first part were Sadducee and the other Pharisee, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee and of the hope of the resurrection of the dead I am called into question. Chapter 26, verse 5, Which knew me from the beginning, if, you, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Paul was called a Pharisee. He lived, according to his religion, very straight, straightest sect of his religion as a Pharisee. Let's back up here. Paul, I am a Pharisee. I am the son of a Pharisee. Paul, I lived according to the straightest sect of my religion as a Pharisee. He was called a Pharisee. And in Acts chapter 22, when he stands before the Sanhedrin council, he says, Men and brethren, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God as ye are all this day. He was called a Pharisee, separated unto the law of Of his fathers. You see this language and how this works. He was called and separated, but now he's been called an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, a witness of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And he has been separated unto the gospel. First Corinthians chapter fifteen and nine, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles. This was his humble perception of himself. He saw himself as the least because he persecuted the church of God. Now my Perception of Paul is much different. I'm sure many of you share the same. I believe Paul is the greatest apostle of the New Testament. And he was certainly separated and called. Acts 13 and 2, And they ministered to the Lord and fasted, and the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work, whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, and they laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Separated and called. Galatians 1 and 15, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to receive His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Paul was called an apostle, a witness of the resurrection of Christ, separated unto the gospel of God, sent to preach Jesus Christ among the heathen, the alien sinner. He was called and separated unto the gospel. I want us to notice verse number 2. Paul says, that gospel that he was separated unto, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is a very important point in the beginning of this letter because Paul is explaining to these people that he's writing to that he did not just pull these things out of his hat. These are not just things that, that were passed on to them at through his family as it was a fable or or some story but it's truth and it was promised and he says I'll show you Acts chapter 28 beginning verse 17 Paul arrives in Rome And the Bible says that it came to pass that after three days Paul called the chief of the Jews together. And when they were come together, he said unto them, Men and brethren, though I have committed nothing against the people or the customs of our fathers, yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who when they had examined me would have let me go because there was no cause of death in me. But when the Jews spake against it, I was constrained to appeal unto Caesar, not that I had ought to accuse my nation of. For this cause, therefore, I have called for you, to see you, to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. And they said unto him, neither, We neither receive letters out of Judea concerning thee, neither any of the brethren that came showed or spake any harm of thee, but we desire to hear of thee that thou thinkest, for as concerning this sect, we, have, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed him a day, they came many to him into his lodging, or into his house, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning till evening. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. Unfortunately, that's just the way that that goes. But when he got to Rome, he did exactly what he wrote to them, that he would show them that the things that he's talking about, this gospel of God that he's been separated unto, he testified unto them concerning the kingdom, concerning Jesus, out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets. He indeed showed them out of the scriptures concerning these things. Now, verses 8 to 15, we see Paul's desire to go unto the brethren in Rome. Now verses 8 to 12 I have here on the screen, and I want to run through these quickly. There are five things that we see in this text that are characteristics of Paul that he had in his life. We see in this writing, and we can apply them to our lives and be better for it. I want us to take quick notice of these. First of all, Paul was a thankful servant. He thanked God through Jesus Christ for them all, that their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. This was something that Paul did often. We see this in many of his epistles. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. Colossians 3 verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you are called in one body and be ye thankful. Verse number 9, For God is my witness whom I serve in my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. He was certainly a prayerful servant, and he writes about this a lot. His heart's desire in prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He tells us in chapter 12, verse 12, Rejoice in hope, patience in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Verse 10, Making request, if by any means not at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. He submitted to the will of God. We all need to, of course, submit to the will of God. Paul desired to go to Rome. He wanted to be with the brethren in Rome, but he understood it would only happen if God willed it. And ultimately, God willed it. And he arrived in Rome and preached the gospel there. It may have not have been the way that Paul would have desired to go, it may not have been the way that he would have chosen, but nonetheless, he went. And ultimately, Caesar flipped the bill. James four thirteen to 15 Go to now, ye that say, Today and tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain, whereas ye know not what shall be of tomorrow. For what is your life? It is a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this and do that. Certainly the mindset of Paul that we... Two can have, verse eleven. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gifts. He was certainly one who came to serve and not be served. Matthew chapter twenty, verses twenty six to twenty eight. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Paul certainly had this very same characteristic. Verse 12, That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. This verse speaks very loudly by itself. Paul, in my opinion, the greatest apostle of the New Testament, writes to his brethren and he says that I want to be with you. Why? So that I can be comforted by us being together in the mutual faith that we share. Brethren, it's important that you're here tonight. It's important that we spend time together and encourage each other, not just here, but always. I appreciate you being here tonight. Verses 16 and 17. This text is worthy of a sermon by itself, and we will not be able to uncover everything in it, nor do I claim to understand everything in it. But I hope that we will see this passage in a new light. First thing Paul says is that he's not ashamed of the gospel. As I was studying for this sermon and preparing, I, I pondered this scripture. We, we know this scripture. We, we use it all the time. I read it to people constantly when I'm studying with them about the gospel. But I had not considered this. Maybe you haven't either. Have you considered what Paul endured up to this point when he sat in Corinth that winter in 58 and penned these words, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I had not, really. Let's take a look at this, what Paul endured up to that point. First of all, right after he's converted in Acts chapter 9, he goes into the synagogues, he's preaching Jesus, and he goes from being the persecutor to the persecuted. Quite the, quite the, the swap there. These Jews desired to kill Paul, and he had to flee the city of Damascus, let over the wall in a basket by night, right after he's converted. Chapter 14, Paul is stoned and left to die in Lystra. Chapter 16, he's beaten, arrested, and jailed in Philippi. Chapter 17, he's chased out of the city of Thessalonica by the Jews, and they were very mad at him. Also in chapter 17, he was laughed at and scorned in Athens when he gave that wonderful sermon on Mars Hill. And then chapter 18, Paul goes to Corinth to write, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That certainly adds a little bit more weight to that statement in my mind, and I hope that it does you as well. I also was reading lots of things about this passage of Scripture and what people had to say about it. I'm interested in those things. One of the things that I kept hearing over and over from lots of different people is that because Paul wrote this statement, he made this statement, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, they concluded that he was ashamed. That he was scared, that he was afraid to take the gospel to Rome. I want to tell you tonight, I reject that idea. And I hope that you will reject that with me. I do not believe that Paul was scared or afraid or ashamed to preach the gospel in Rome. But I have to ask myself, would I have been scared, afraid, or ashamed to preach the gospel in Rome? It's worthy of consideration. Why would someone be ashamed to preach in Rome. There are a few things that I think we should consider. First of all, the sheer size of Rome. The, the size, the pomp, the bliss of this city. It was the greatest city on earth at the time. Literally, they called it in Latin, Caput Mundi. I'm not very good at Latin. That's something I, I came across. It literally means the head of the world. Those things are intimidating. Very intimidating. The the, the power of Rome would be very intimidating and would cause people to maybe be scared, afraid, or ashamed to preach the gospel in Rome. But then there's this. What the gospel was identified with in, in, in in the eyes of these Romans, in the eyes of these pagans. Because in reality, during this day, the gospel, which we say is good news, they did not see it as good news. Instead, they saw the gospel and it was associated with a poor Jewish carpenter man who was crucified upon a cross. That's not very appealing to Romans during this time. Another thing that might intimidate someone from preaching the gospel in Rome is how the pagans saw Christians during this time. It would have been one thing if the Christians would have went to Rome and said, hey, we have another God to add to your long list of pantheistic gods for you to worship, just another God to worship. But that's not what Christianity does. That's not what Christianity is. We worship the one and true and living God who sent His Son to die upon the cross for our sins, and we reject all other gods because there is no other God. The pagans did not like this. Hence why they nicknamed Christians Atheos. Many of you may know what that word means. That's where we get the English word atheist. They called Christians atheist. It literally means godless. Not in the sense that they didn't worship a God, but they didn't worship all of their gods. They rejected all of their gods, and they only wanted to worship Jehovah Elohim, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 and 18 for the preaching of the cross to them, That perish is foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Quite frankly, the gospel is unattractive to these Romans during this time. It's even repulsive. Because the truth of the gospel is that it exposes man. It exposes man's sin. And that is not something that a lot of people are fond of. But Paul understands one thing. The preaching of the cross is the power of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to save us. Brethren, I'm running a little long. I'm going to have to skip through some of this. My apologies. Let's get down here to verses 18 to 32. This text is worthy of a sermon by itself also. Paul, when he begins to write in verse number 18, he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So verse 18, God's wrath will be revealed from heaven against unrighteousness. Okay? Now notice verses 19 and 20. Because that which may be known of God is manifested unto them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood... By the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Brethren, God has revealed himself to these people, these Gentile people, these people who claim that they don't know God, but really they do, and they're without excuse because God has showed himself to them. Even the invisible things from the creation of the world, they're clearly seen and they're understood by the things that are made, and it even reveals God's power particularly the power of the Godhead. Notice Psalms 19, verses 1 to 3. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. They unto day utter His speech. That means each and every day the glory of God testifies to them when they walk outside at day or at night, and they just look up. And look around and look at God's creation. It screams out to them, no matter what language they speak or where they're from or what they believe, that they are not there by accident. They're not. That there is an intelligent designer who created you. Created all of this. They are without excuse. Notice verse 21. Because that when they knew God. This is not a relationship with God. Not at all. Certainly not an intimate relationship with God. Not at all. This is just an intellectual understanding, an acknowledgement in their mind that we're not here by accident. That they have experienced in some way, whether it's just by observing God's creation, they have experienced the manifold, magnificent wonders of God. And when they witnessed this, they glorified Him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. I want you to notice something. We're going to notice some progression here, okay? And we're going to recap it in just a minute. First thing that happens is God shows himself to them. The second thing that happens is that they reject it. They're without excuse, but they reject it. Thirdly, after they have done that, after they have not glorified God as God, their hearts become darkened. Their foolish hearts become darkened. They profess to be wise, but... They're not wise. They've become fools. Modern day science tells you you're here by accident. The world did not care about you when it created you. The truth is God cared about you when He created you. Romans 1 and 23. Notice this here. At this point, God, they had changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image like corruptible man, the birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. They changed the image of God into His creation, a bird, a four footed beast, creeping things. The eagle of Jupiter among the Romans, the hawk among the Egyptians. Four footed beast, the white ox among the Egyptians. This is where I believe that the Israelites got their calf from. Creeping things such as the crocodile among the Egyptians. That's what they changed the image of the uncorruptible God into an image like corruptible man. Bird, four footed beast, creeping thing. And then, the result, verse 24. Wherefore God gave them up to the uncleanliness, excuse me, gave them up to uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts. So they have rejected God. He's shown himself to them. They've rejected him. Their foolish heart is darkened. They begin to change the image of God into these other things, these animals. And God gives them over to the lust of their own heart. This is the first step. This is the first step and, and the dissension of the morality of any nation of people ever on planet Earth. This is, this is where morality begins to decay. is here. So God gives them over to the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Let's notice the progression here. Verse 19 and 20, God reveals himself and they're without excuse. Verse 21 and 22, they did not glorify God as God and they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 23, they changed the glory of God and they began to worship the creature. Verse 24, God gave them up to the lust of their own hearts. Now, verse 25 who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. So now their heart has gone and their mind has followed. The next step is their body. Verse 26, "...for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature." And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust, one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and revealing in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. This is the moral decay of every society on earth. It begins by rejecting God and their foolish hearts being darkened, and then they begin to worship the creature more than the creator. Their mind has now gone with their heart, and then their bodies follow. Paul says even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. I pondered this quite a bit. I want to share with you what I really think about this. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right. When a society as a whole, or as as a general whole, not every person, not every woman, but as a general whole, when the women began to leave the natural use and go against nature, They're forsaking lots of things that God put in them that they're having to abandon. Some of the greatest joys and pleasures of their life, some of their deepest fulfillments that God put in them because we're created in the image of God. And in man and woman, He put in us characteristics that ultimately are divine in God. And when a woman changes the natural use of her body and goes against nature, she is forsaking all of that. She's forsaking the ability to be a mother, to love, to nurture, to have a husband, and to cher- cherish him and to take care of him, and vice versa, so to speak. But when Paul says that even the women have done this, they're swiftly, as a, as a general whole, as a nation of people, they're swiftly approaching this reprobate mind and may possibly already even be there. Verse 28 And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Now here we are. They rejected Him. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They began to worship the creature more than the Creator. They were given over to their vile affections. The women even changed the natural use into that which is against nature. And now they do not even like to think about God. To retain Him in their knowledge. When when thoughts of morality, which God is the ultimate standard for morality, are present, they flee from it. So God gave them over to a reprobate mind and to do those things which are not convenient. This is the last step in a society of people. This is the judgment of abandonment where God finally says you can have it your way. I won't keep you from it. They have sought and pursued sin to the bitter end and the result is is that their mind is not right. Their mind is not right. Verses 29 to 32, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliousness, full of envy, murder, debate. That word debate is not like where two men stand on a stage and have a discussion about an issue. There's a God associated with this word debate. The God of strife, the God of contingency, uh, the God uh, Ares, deceit, malice. I'm not sure what that word is, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affections, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. This is what follows this reprobate mind. And if we look at our nation and nations around the world, we see them following suit with these things. Are we as a nation there? Have we become reprobate in our mind? I'll let you decide that for yourself. My opinion is yes, we have. The problem lies, though, with the heart of man, with the mind of man, which leads to our actions. And when we cease as a nation, as a world, to retain God in our thinking, to think about God and to worship God as God, the end result is a reprobate mind. The end result is a judgment of God. The end result is death, a separation from God. So to prevent this, we need to worship God as God and retain Him in our thinking. I know that this has been abnormal tonight, but I hope that it's been beneficial. And I'd encourage you to not let this be the last time that you look at Romans chapter 1. There's so much in it to discuss, and the same for each of these chapters that follow week after week. Continue to study this book, and it'll be a blessing to you in your life. Tonight, if you have a matter of care that you need the prayers of this congregation for, if you've not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have not worshiped God as God, we encourage you to do that tonight as we stand and sing.